Hello and welcome to all of you on behalf of the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. <clears throat> My name is Jerry Boston. I'm visiting research professor at the Institute and uh, co-host of this event. Today, we discuss socio-cultural developments in the UAE, which has just celebrated 50 years of statehood. In half a century, the Emirates has witnessed the transformation from a cluster of modest desert sheikhdoms into a country that has become synonymous with breathtakingly rapid progress. It is now a major international energy hub, a business and financial hub, and increasingly a center of technological and scientific innovation, while also a host to international sporting and cultural events. The UAE is active in international politics. We have all watched the Abraham Accords initiative unfolding, and now we see the Emirates as non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council at a very critical, crucial moment. The Emirates, of course, is a major player in securing energy for the world, in sustaining the energy security, and what the Emirates does now will have an impact not just on energy markets, but also on international politics. I think uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that uh, in the shadow of this immense material progress, we have somewhat neglected the social changes and transformation in the Emirates. During my first visit in the Emirates in the early 1980s, <clears throat> I witnessed an album of photographs made by uh, the American traveler Taziger, who visited the Emirates in the 1940s. Some of these photographs have shown <clears throat> His Excellency, the founder, Sheikh Zayed, among his retinue in his tent. And uh, they were proudly displayed at the time, already marking uh, the amazing contrast between once and now. And that now has transformed today into a country which has sent a probe to Mars and which is now becoming synonymous with the amazing progress that the whole region is viewing. But the Emirates still remains quite unique because as a federal state, it is now not just a union of uh, quite a colorful uh, and interesting people with varied backgrounds, but also it is the home of a migrant community, which is 10 times the size of the country's original population. I think the, the Emirates very much merits a closer look at, at its uh, situation socially and culturally. And for this, we have invited three noted experts to help us uh, under the baton of our um, seasoned moderator, and let me just introduce participants, speakers of this event who are with us now on two opposing sides of the globe. Mr. Mohamed Baharoun, Dr. Janardan Narayanappa, and Dr. Emma Subri. Let me give their short bios to you. Mr. Mohamed Baharoun is the Director General of the Dubai Public Policy Research Center, Bahus, established in 2002 in Dubai, UAE. 
He pursued a career in media as a reporter for Al-Arabi magazine and Al-Ittihad newspaper, and then as an editor for Gulf Defense magazine before starting as director of research at Behouth and focusing on the interplay between geostrategy and policymaking in governance, stability, capacity building, and future-proofing. Mohammed has also worked as the deputy director of Watani, the UAE's first initiative on national identity, and is also a founding member of the board of the Busola Institute, a think tank in Brussels that focuses on the changing and emerging aspects of partnership between the EU and the GCC member states. Mohamed Baharoun has a master's degree in English literature from Texas Tech University in 1995 and an English major from Kuwait University in 1987. Welcome, Mohamed. Dr. Janardan Narayanapa is a senior research fellow at the Anwar Gargash Diplomatic Academy in Abu Dhabi. The last of his four books is The Gulf's Pivot to Asia, from Transactional to Strategic Partnership. He also launches and trains, teaches and trains diplomats on Gulf and Asian foreign policies. With a PhD from Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, he's a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf Institute in Washington, managing assistant editor of the Journal of Arabian Studies, as well as a keen sports person. Dr. Emma Soubrier, sitting at the moment in Washington, DC, is a visiting scholar at the Institute for Middle East Studies at the George Washington University, Washington, DC. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and an associate researcher at the Centre Michel de l'Hospital, Université Clermont-Auvergne. Her research focuses on the security strategies and foreign policies of the countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council, particularly the UAE, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, and the public economy of arms trade in the Gulf. Dr. Soubrier has published numerous articles and book chapters in French and English on Gulf security issues. Her work looks to promote a renewed approach to security that no longer focuses merely on the political and military aspects of security, but includes a broader look at people-centric dimensions human security, particularly societal security and environmental security. Her forthcoming book, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, Diverging Paths to Regional and Global Power, coming out with Boulder, Lynn Render, 2022, is based on her PhD thesis, which received a dissertation award from the Institute for Higher National Defense Studies in France in 2018. As part of a research team with the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University, she's also currently working on a project on defense industries, foreign policy and armed conflict, funded by the Carnegie Corporation in New York. Our moderator is my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Clemens Chai, co-host of this event. And he's a research fellow at the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute. His research focuses on the history and politics of the Gulf states, with a particular emphasis on Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar. 
since last April, he has been he has been in the public education series of the Gulf region entitled Bridging the Gulf. He is currently working on a book project related to Kuwait divanias. We have produced a highly amazing team of experts who are dealing with the Gulf and have published copiously on Gulf topics and an excellent moderator. So I think it's time for us to hear them talk about our topic. Over to you, Clemens, and I wish that we will enjoy a highly interesting debate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Georgi, for the introductions and a very good evening from Singapore, or good afternoon, or good morning, depending on where you may be tuning in from. Also, Aid Kum Mubarak to all our Muslim friends. My name is Clemens Che from the Middle East Institute at NUS. And as my colleague Georgi has kindly introduced, I will be moderating today's discussion on the UAE. Joining me today are our three esteemed speakers, Mr. Mohammed Baharun, Dr. Janadan Naraneapa, and Dr. Emma Subrie. Please allow me to build on the earlier reflections of my colleague Georgi by returning to the title of today's webinar, calling the UAE a trailblazer in a shifting landscape. And, and the focus I would like to make is on landscape, a shifting landscape to be exact. So as we know, COVID-19 restrictions are currently being eased in many parts of the world with flights resuming, people traveling, yet our memory will tell us that at the onset and at the height of the pandemic, time seemingly stood still for much of the world. But in the UAE, the landscape continued to evolve with new developments coming to fruition. Again, we raise the term landscape because there are mega projects in the pipeline, not only in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but also in the Northern Emirates. To name a few, the Dubai Expo site, for example, will be transformed into District 2020, which is expected to be the UAE's first 15-minute city, a cycle-friendly and tra traffic-free suburb of the growing metropolis. And also, why have one Atlantis on Palm Jumeirah when you can have two? So yes, there will be a, a second wing at the Royal Atlantis in Dubai and elsewhere in the first phase of Dubai's e-commerce free zone, uh, which has just been launched in the Um Ramul area near the international airport. This has been also launched. But the above examples really are just with reference to Dubai. And Abu Dhabi, Sharjah, Ras Al-Khaimah, for example, will also oversee new projects ranging from further developments on a natural island. Here I'm referring to Reem Island, also to prospective casino projects, in this case, Ras Al-Khaimah, or a forest community district in Sharjah. So the point being, the landscape is changing. Projects were in the pipeline despite, despite the pandemic. So I think this notion of an ever-changing landscape and the socio-cultural developments and implications present a suitable point of departure for our discussion today. So our three speakers will be delivering opening remarks of about 10 to 12 minutes each, during which the audience is free to type in their questions in the Zoom chat box to either myself or to MEI events. So you don't have to wait till the end of their remarks to send in your questions. You can just start sending them as soon as something hits your, your head. So without further ado, please allow me to welcome Mr. Mohammed Baharun to provide his 
opening remarks, which will touch on the major trends in the UAE's policies as it expire, aspires to become a united global Emirates and how he views the case of multiculturalism, for example, connectivity and the loosening of social regulations. Are there social trade-offs in the UAE's bid in the UAE's bid to retain its first mover advantage. So without further ado, let me hand this over to you, Mohammed. all yours. Uh, Professor Shea, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for the kind uh, invitation to be with you here today. Uh, I think the uh, scene has been uh, pretty much set, uh, talking about the UAE moving uh, uh, into you know, a phase of federation that marked the, the, the establishment or inception of the state. And I think if I wanted to uh, sort of deconstruct the major trends as you uh, uh, describe them into something like three major major trends that has happened to the UAE and has been uh, uh, causing changes in what the UAE is doing, I would possibly talk about three uh, trends. The first trend is the trend of federalization, which is the transition from the tribal society into a state. And the federalization, uh, uh, which is the inception of the UAE as a federal state, have compromised the uh, seven emirates into, into one uh, unity. Now that was a complex uh, uh, power sharing uh, governance system that was put in place to allow those seven emirates, six at first, but then, then uh, nine, then, then seven, uh, become a, a group of, of people who could uh, work together and uh, sort of thrive together. Now, uh, the, the, there is an actual root into all of this in, in the formulation of the federation. Then that, that root is part of the cultural values of alliances that tribes have always enjoyed. So it was not just throwing the tribes away, re replacing it with a new uh, uh, state or uh, Republic, if you want. It was a transition uh, building on the strength and the values of, of the tribe into the, the new state. And I think that was a major success that has uh, kept us going until today, which is not throwing the old, but building on it and maintaining a root of, of uh, traditional values and, and uh, cultural values uh, in, into those uh, moves. Uh, major point in, in that transition was a realization that differences is an enabler for integration. It was not a weakness, it was a strength. And that is what got us into uh, the, the second uh, trend, if you want, which is the trend of integration, trying to integrate those differences into, into a, a form uh, a way of cooperation, a way of creating uh, a synthesis, if, if you want. Uh, the, the differences between tribes has now been, you know, amalgamated into a new way of people who can thrive on each other's strength rather than, you know, on each other's differences or weaknesses. And that model of integration has found itself in a number of, of uh, transitions, both in economic and in, in social uh, arenas. Uh, the power sharing itself, uh, the power sharing agreement itself was also rooted in the concept of solidarity. And that solidarity, which is another uh, value system, uh, means that those who can give to the state and those who can't, the state will give to them. 
And it was not about an equal, you know, shareholding. You get as much as you pay. It was a system of support for each other. That type of, of you know, uh, umbrella uh, uh, of cohesiveness, of responsibility for the others uh, was, was very much seen during the pandemic area when Sheikh Hamad bin Zayed came out and say, don't worry, your medicine and food is guaranteed to infinity. That was a huge call on responsibility that the UAE have put everything it has got to achieve. And that gave people this uh, idea of being part of this uh, community. And this was extended to everyone who's on the UAE. And in cases it went beyond the UAE. So it, it affected nationals, non-nationals, visitors, residents, uh, expats, everyone who was living in there. So that concept of solidarity started with the inception of the UAE 50 years back, but still lives with us in the darkest of hours as, as we see it. Uh, this also had an implication on the economic makeup. So the diversity of the UAE's economy is also sort of rooted in, 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 in uh, integrating differences. Uh, and it, it's uh, to give you an example, Dubai's choice, for instance, to have 100% ownership of land or of business, sorry, in, in, in the uh, free zones, uh, when uh, Jabal Ali free zone was established, was sort of a, a diversion from what the entire GCC has agreed on, which is a makeup, uh, uh, you know, uh, an ownership, a foreign ownership makeup of 51% to locals and of up to 49% to non-local. Uh, that was a departure from it. But that was not sort of shunned upon or subdued. It was alive to thrive, and it became sort of a model. The same thing happened with the investment in Emirates Airlines, which was sort of counter to the intuitive uh, uh, choice of the UAE to support a pan-GCC ban uh, airline, which was the uh, uh, Gulf Air at that point. Uh, but that again, this was not shunned away, it was not stopped, it was allowed to thrive. And now we've seen national airlines competing over, all over the world, including Emirates Airlines at Tihad and Qatar Airways. Uh, so that is the way where differences were being integrated into uh, you know, the, the federation. Now, uh, the third one is, I would call the expansion. And this is the, the, the trend that we're living today as we're looking into the next 50 years, which is expansion from local to global, expansion of concepts that we have within the UAE, like the concept of uh, tolerance to become a, a, a region-wide type of, of uh, concept that you can build on political initiatives such as the Abrahamic Accord. You could not have the Abrahamic Accord without the concept of tolerance. We could not have the concept of tolerance without accepting others. And that's, you know, in a way uh, uh, explains why there is 200 plus uh, nationalities in, in, in the UAE uh, that live, work in, in, in peace and cooperation without huge differences that marks up this. Uh, and I think that uh, was clearly seen to be uh, a reason of a shared a set of values. Uh, the UAE national identity is also a value-based identity. And uh, it transcends the role that people have used for identity as a selective uh, role, where you could see that these people either belong to the club or don't belong to the club to become an inclusive role. 
Uh, and I think this is the major differences between how people perceive identity here and they perceive it in, in, in other places. It's not the ranks that you put on, 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 on your shoulder to allow you or give you certain uh, you know, uh, uh, privileges. It's what type of values that you share with, with others. And uh, those, you know, one of the, the tolerance project, I would call one of a major national uh, uh, project for the UAE. And it has its roots in, 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 in its traditions. It has its roots in practices, but also it was one of those things that protected us against radicalization and terrorism. We didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, incidents of, of uh, terrorist attacks or radical movements, very strong radical movements, because of that. Because the community kept expelling those, you know, uh, offsprings of, of radicalization or terrorism. But also, it turns into, as I mentioned a while ago, some sort of a, a regional project where other countries have seen the value of tolerance into turning it into political. Uh, sort of uh, initiative. Uh, so I, I would possibly uh, stop here and maybe come back and to um, elaborate on some of those points later on in, 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 in Q&A, if, if you may. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mohammed, for your salient points, which we'll return to later during the Q&A, as you rightfully pointed out. Um, there are some points that are of interest and I think will develop into further talking points, including of course the three phases that you outlined and also the concept of tolerance, which I think will be of interest to some of uh, the audience here. Um, I shall now turn to uh, Dr. Janathan, who will expand on the UAE's open forum policy and how this dribbles down to the community level and how also this is perceived from an expert, from an expert point of view. So how can we piece together notions of identity in the UAE? Uh, Mohammed, of course, covered some of it, but I think, Dr. Janathan, I think you have more to say. So the floor is yours. Thank you, Clemens. And uh, thanks also to uh, Georgie, as well as uh, MEI NUS uh, for inviting me. Uh, no one better than Mohammed Bahrun uh, could have uh, set the stage. Uh, let me just add my two bits uh, to his observations. And uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, it will be an Indian expat's perspective. Um, you know, I'd love to always start this way. Uh, when I arrived in the UAE 22 years ago, um, someone asked me, what is your thesis about? Um, and I said, it's about political systems and international relations of the Gulf. And uh, that gentleman just looked around, winked at me and said, must have been a very short thesis, right? Uh, so there wasn't too much that could have been written about the UAE at that point in time, obviously, but um, the UAE, as you all know, has come a long way since then in all uh, facets of its existence. I'd like to make uh, three sets of remarks, um, all pertaining to the dynamics of what uh, Mohammed once called uh, the United Global Emirates. I think uh, that's a good uh, term to use for the UAE. Uh, I'd start with uh, an expat's perspective of an Emirati identity. Uh, next, I will talk a little bit about an expat's uh, own identity in the UAE. And uh, lastly, I'd like also to talk a little bit about uh, UAE foreign policy from an expat's perspective. And uh, for those of you in the audience who are very academic minded, uh, a note of caution, 
my comments are deliberately fashioned to be uh, you know, less empirical and more anecdotal. So first up, a few pointers on the expat's perspective of Emirati identity. Uh, actually, it's not just expatriates who have uh, twin or even triple identities. I have observed uh, some nationals or Emiratis also having very distinct identities uh, here. Uh, you know, like expats have regional, um, national, and international identities, which they display based on you know, need of the hour. Uh, Emiratis also exhibit uh, such identities. They have a tribal, um, local, Emirate, uh, federal Emirati, as you can call it, and, and even an international identity among liberal Emiratis uh, or those with foreign spouses or parents, you know. So their tribal and local Emirati affiliation is reinforced, of course, on a day-to-day -day basis um, in their day-to-day -day existence and during important political exercises uh, like the elections to the Federal National Assembly, uh, which is their mini parliament, which is the UAE's mini parliament. For those unaware, uh, the UAE has had elections uh, since 2006 with half the uh, MPs to the parliament. That's 20 of the 40 are elected, the rest selected. It started off with about um, 6,500 voters as part of the Electoral College in 2006. This is now, uh, I think, over 300,000 uh, in the last elections in 2019 and 50% uh, of the MPs is uh, women in the FNC. So during elections, I think tribal and local identities are very strong. Uh, so strong that uh, tribal identity is uh, deliberately now being discouraged in some cases to avoid monopoly by certain tribes. Uh, on the flip side, their federal Emirati identity or national identity comes to the fore when they are among expats or when they travel abroad. But an interesting observation I have made uh, is about their identity for branding purposes. Um, it may seem trivial, but this is something that I have witnessed uh, in person. Some Emiratis identify themselves as hailing from Dubai, even if they are hailing from other Emirates uh, when they are abroad. That's simply because of brand Dubai, right, which is recognized everywhere. But now, of course, Abu Dhabi and UAE as uh, brands have also gained plenty of ground in recent years, uh, so much so that uh, the UAE now advertises itself as a country with not one, but two world-class cities, uh, or even um, advertises itself as one hoarding did on the dubai Abu Dhabi highway, which, is, uh, which read thus, UAE is not just the center of the Arab world, but the Arab center of the world. Uh, now let me move to the second of my main themes, an expat's own identity in the Emirates. An academic anthropologist uh, friend who visited Dubai many years ago, narrated a phrase from one of her interviewees and it's stuck in my head ever since. Uh, when she asked an expatriate college student uh, what his identity was. He reportedly replied, I'm Indian, head to toe, but a Dubaiite at heart. Now that I think the term Dubaiite could be easily substituted with UAEite or Emiratite, if there is a word of that kind, 
um, to affirmatively state that there is a UAE model in the minds of every expatriate uh, living in the UAE. I think this is not a figment of uh, imagination, right? I mean, there is substance to calling systems in the UAE as a unique model. So again, when I arrived in the UAE in 2000, the population of this country was just 4.3 million. It is nearly 10 million now. How many countries have been able to double their population in about two decades, right? There must have been um, three or four malls in 2000. There must be 300 or 400 malls now. And Mohammed already mentioned, right, that um, you had just Emirates and Gulf Air at that point in time. Now you have um, four or five airlines uh, operating out of the UAE. So again, as Clement said, the landscape has changed dramatically. And, and you know, the world always talks about uh, exodus from the UAE, exodus from Dubai, first during the 2008 financial crisis, um, and then during the pandemic. Uh, I advise all of you to just go back and check your numbers, double check if you don't believe it. Uh, but more people more people than those who left have actually returned uh, to the UAE, both after 2008 and now after 2020. Again, if you don't believe uh, numbers, uh, just check out the rents easily available on the net uh, of be it uh, business, you know, buildings that host businesses or even uh, residential complexes, right? In 2020, 2021 and 2022, uh, my colleague just recently told me that the rent for his villa has uh, sort of doubled uh, just between, you know, May last year and May this year. Uh, you know, law of demand doesn't lie normally. So another example I want to give you of this unique uh, UAE Gulf model is that it actually challenges uh, the nation state theory because expatriates in the GCC countries are designated as temporary contractual workers. But we always end up living in what uh, another friend, sociologist friend of mine termed as permanent state of impermanence. We live in a permanent state of impermanence. But we also enjoy uh, most of the benefits that citizens enjoy without paying income tax. And I think that's really the key. Yes, uh, you know, indirect tech, taxes are increasing every year, but uh, it is part of the game as, as the country goes about uh, economic diversification. Uh, according to Faisal Devji, uh, a historian uh, who, who once said that the elimination of statehood, uh, nationhood in the UAE as a basis for identity portends a global future. It is the closest thing to a community organized by capitalism. Workers and management have recourse to a language beyond citizenship. So again, I mean, uh, Mohammed mentioned a few of those things and Clemens mentioned as well. Uh, there is an effort now uh, to transition from oil to post oil economy. There's been an economic slowdown in recent years. Uh, there's been intra GCC or Gulf Cooperation Council economic competition, and of course, uh, COVID-19 uh, have all combined to serve as uh, disruptors of the rules of engagement between the government and expatriates. Uh, all the changes that have taken place in terms of long-term golden visas, work from home visas, ownership, again, which Mohammed mentioned, of businesses without local sponsors, 
and even very selective citizenship has changed uh, the game further. Uh, this is being now viewed as conditional inclusion. But uh, I, I was telling Georgie and Clemens a little while ago that I just uh, returned from Georgia just an hour ago, in fact. And uh, I'm just very happy to tell you that I didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about uh, a visa to go to Georgia. By virtue of being a resident of the UAE, I had a visa on arrival and I walked in and walked out like many uh, passport holders of Western countries do in most parts of the world. So I think it's those sort of privileges that I'm talking about in terms of my own identity by being associated with the UAE, I get some rare privileges which I don't normally get. So uh, there are many such you know, examples that I can give you. Uh, they usually say that uh, home is where the heart is, uh, but I always tell people that from a very practical perspective, uh, that's, that's uh, something from the past. Today, home is where the job is, right? So as part of my official job, uh, you know, making policy for the government and, and teaching uh, diplomats, uh, I'm often forced to wear uh, an Emirati thinking cap over my Indian heart and mind. So my wife often jokes that I have uh, schizophrenia. Uh, basically, I have a split personality. Uh, I'm Indian at heart, but an Emirati in the mind. Uh, and, 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 and again, I mean, many more examples. I think I shouldn't be boring you too much with examples of my own, but a good example, I think, to seal this second part of my presentation would be um, certain anecdotes from my son, who is 18 years old now, uh, he's 21st century child, and his identity in the UAE is something uh, that, that, you know, is, is, is for the future, right? So he's actually one step ahead. I, I often think that I have become a global citizen after coming to the UAE, given its tolerance levels, um, my identity, even though I'm not a practicing Hindu, I think um, this country, the UAE has made me much more secular than I was when I arrived here, uh, simply by virtue of having had all these uh, different uh, religious people living here, different nationalities living here, and nothing, uh, uh, you know, expresses that feeling better than my uh, approach towards Pakistan and Pakistanis with whom India has had, uh, you know, uh, India and Indians have had strained ties for several decades. I can tell you that I, I now enjoy my India-Pakistan cricket matches much better than I ever did in my life before. So my son, uh, you know, he, he, he can be called uh, a global citizen, really, an international citizen. When he was about two years old, my wife and I actually um, told him to fold his hands every time we went past a mosque or when we heard the azan, uh, just telling him that that's the temple and that's the prayer call, fold your hands. And, you know, subconsciously, even in his sleep, if he heard the azan, he would fold his hands. You know, that has really made him an international citizen over a period of time. He now knows a few verses from the Quran. He can um, speak a little bit of Arabic, uh, which gives him a distinct identity, not that of an Indian like I was or an Indian that he would have been if he was in India and not really an Emirati as Emiratis are here, right? He also sings the UAE national anthem, Ishi Biladi, just as well as he can uh, sing the Indian national anthem, Janagana Mana. And, and he plays both tunes on the keyboard. So I think that's what 
uh, I love about the country. I mean, I think that's the sort of identity I would have loved to inculcate as a youth. Uh, and, and I'm glad that my son has been able to do that. And in fact, when he left for university last summer, uh, he actually carried a dish dasha with him to say that, I mean, saying that he would wear one uh, on Arab day. So in case you're all wondering why all this is relevant, I think uh, you know, it, it is important to link the liberal and tolerant religious and cultural milieu that uh, UAE has encouraged uh, to, to ensure that expatriates, uh, expatriates feel at home. And, and it is this feeling uh, among people of other nationalities and religions, uh, which is actually being deliberately cultivated, I think, to a large extent, because I think there is economic sense, economic sense is common sense. That's, I think, really the motto of the government. Economic sense is common sense. And it has triumphed over, uh, uh, triumphed over religious ideology, and it is beginning to bear fruits in the foreign policy domain as well. This is uh, the last bit that I want to tell you about uh, the Indian expats view on UAE foreign policy, and I promise it's shorter than the last section, uh, which is basically, again, my observation that uh, while India has a lot to learn from the UAE, I think uh, some ideas of India have also influenced uh, UAE's identity. Uh, India is not just a country, it is an idea. Uh, it is also an imagined community in a sense. For the UAE, India is perhaps an example of how uh, it is one of the most diverse countries in the world. It is unitary in nature, but federal in character. It embodies unity in diversity, different tribes, different religions, different languages, different states, yet one country, right? I'm sure some of you must be wondering what sort of a comparison is this? Yes, India has plenty of problems, some of it ongoing, but I always tell people, it has a method in its madness. Uh, and again, I want to share an anecdote. When I first spoke to Emirati diplomats um, in the UAE in 2000, and even as recently as maybe about five, six years ago, uh, they asked me, what is India's foreign policy all about? And I would tell them that, uh, you know, it's very sophisticated, but it doesn't really get enough credit. It's good with the United States, good with Russia, good with the Palestinians, good with Israelis, um, as well as Iran and the GCC countries. And they would invariably laugh or even get angry at times saying, what sort of a foreign policy is this? How can you be friends with everyone? Either you're with us or against us, the sort of Bush talk, you know, but uh, cut to 2022 and uh, even uh, 2020 or 2022 and UAE foreign policy is now beginning to resemble India's. Uh, friends with everyone has made up with Qatar, is making up with Turkey and Iran as well. Uh, from reactive to pro proactive foreign policy, from an idealist to a realist foreign policy, from economic diversification to foreign policy diversification, which is now extended to security diversification, uh, from being a security recipient to now becoming a security provider. And I think the most important thing for me is that it is now viewing modernization beyond westernization. Usually modernization has always been associated with westernization. I think it's now embracing modernization in Asianization, in Easternization. And, and in all this, I think UAE foreign policy has uh, become smart to use uh, Joseph Nye's term. So uh, let me end by saying that, you know, India celebrates 75 years of independence this year and uh, UAE celebrates 50 years or 
and 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 both are on the UNSC. Both abstained from the U.S. back vote on Russia-Ukraine war. Both have stressed on strategic autonomy in a multipolar world, uh, or as uh, Mohammed uh, Baharun has recently coined, uh, in a multi-networked world. Uh, a wonderful coinage, I think, Mohammed. Uh, the UAE has uh, signed uh, the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement separately with India and Israel which is slowly assuming a trilateral dynamic. UAE, India, and Israel are working together. And I think they will work together even more in the future. Uh, in fact, uh, the UAE and India are now partners of the future with Israel and the United States. Many call it the, a new quad. I think that's a wrong term. It's not geared towards China in any sense. I think uh, U2I2 is, is a better terminology if uh, one wants to think of uh, something creative. Uh, I think the future is all going to be about minilateralism and uh, plurilateralism, and you will see a lot of these small groupings coming up and working together uh, for a limited period of time and then moving on. So if you have doubts about India-UAE ties, um, I think um, any of you can just do a quick uh, random poll among Emiratis, ask them what their favorite food item is in the United Global Emirates, burger, bao, or biryani, and you will get the answer. Thank you. Thank you, Janathan. I think you gave us a lot of food for thought uh, and also a lot of personal experience and anecdotes there. Uh, I'll probably, and our audience as well, probably want to return to some of the talking points that you mentioned, including the fact that you know people are returning to the UAE, uh, rebound, in fact, and, and also the, the status of, of uh, the expat community in, in general. Um, but now, if we are also talking about the UAE's transition towards integration and towards a value-based identity and towards other communal developments, we will also need to widen our horizon on the concept of security to look beyond the traditional aspects of politics and defense. And I know geopolitics and politics were inevitably going to come up in the discussion earlier, as you mentioned, uh, Jonathan. But the focus on transcending these traditional aspects of security is what our third and final speaker, Dr. Emma Soubrier, will cover, what she also previously wrote in the report on human security, which is the human dimension and the needs of communities and individuals rather than a regime or state-centered kind of security. So the floor is yours, Emma. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Clemens, and uh, thank you very much to the organizers. It is a pleasure and an honor to be invited to speak amid such a great panel of scholars, and I really truly appreciated your presentations. I took a lot of notes and I, I really look forward to our discussion uh, afterwards. So continuing uh, the topic of evolving domestic and foreign policies in the UAE and how they were associated to specific uh, social cultural developments in the country, uh, I would like to say a few words about the UAE's evolving approaches to security and how it seems to be increasingly related to people and to the population, not just the population of the country, but the, the population of the region and uh, in, in broader sense, uh, the, the global population, in addition to more traditional dimensions of security. With a couple of caveats that needs to that need to be explored and that I will be talking about. So 
Traditionally, security in the UAE, much like uh, the rest of the region, was essentially, if not entirely, seen uh, in political and military terms. When we talk about Gulf security, we usually focus on territorial integrity, for instance, against external aggression within the Gulf regional security complex. Uh, we also talk about military procurements in a region that is still today one of the regions that buys the more weapons around the world. And of course, the free flow of oil and gas. At least as important as most of you know, uh, and related to all of these uh, previous points, we also focus a lot, and Clemens was mentioning this, on regime stability and security. Indeed, uh, the more military side was long described as aiming to protect regime security more than national security, especially in the very early years. Notably because the countries of the region, including the UAE, simply did not have the capabilities to protect themselves on their own. And that was sorely proven uh, back in 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. The more military side or the arms procurement was also about getting security through indirect means. So here I'm talking about the very well-known and launched oil for security pact or the political dimension of arms trade and how it has very long served as a means to buy the protection of outside powers. Now, those are the traditional dynamics of security in the UAE and more broadly in the Gulf region. Throughout the years, and particularly under the leadership of Mohammed bin Zayed, the military means have uh, been increasingly developed for themselves. And this trend has clearly continued through 2019 with the campaigns in Libya and Yemen, et cetera. It is interesting to note that uh, hard power was never just about military means. Uh, it was very early on used as a way to unify the country as well as consolidate Abu Dhabi's power within the Federation and MBZ's power within the royal family. And there has been uh, a lot written about this and Victor Gervais was one of the first who, uh, who wrote about that very in a very compelling way. More recently, we can think of the fact that conscription, the military service was also used as a key support for nationalism and to encourage young Emiratis to, uh, to quote, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy, not ask what their country could do for them, but what they could do for that country. And in parallel to this, the UAE leadership has started to pay attention to non-traditional aspects of security. So often in international relations, we talk about the five dimensions of security, political security and military security, uh, which will probably uh, always be the most important and in that order, political before military, uh, but also economic security, societal security and environmental security. The three latter dimensions are more broadly understood in terms of human security. So human security has been defined uh, by the United Nations as an approach that identifies and addresses 
widespread and cross-cutting challenges to the survival, livelihood, and dignity of people. So as the events of 2020 have made pretty apparent, some of the main risks that weigh on populations and threaten human security across the board are linked today to health concerns and access to food and water and the natural disasters that are amplified by climate change. So here we can focus on the facets of environmental security and the direct and indirect consequences of climate change. The Gulf region uh, is extremely exposed to global warming. The, the Gulf is the region in the world that is the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Um, in 2007, there was a report uh, by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that estimated that the temperatures in the region would increase by up to two degrees in the next 15 to 20 years. So we're, sorry about that. Uh, so we're already, uh, we're already in, in that uh, time frame, uh, or almost in that time frame. And in 2015, a study was published in uh, Nature Climate Change showed that the combination of severe humidity and rising temperatures caused by global warming could threaten human life in many Gulf population centers by the end of the century, rendering uh, the region un uninhabitable in just over three generations. So when we hear things like that, we can we can see that it it is clearly the most critical security challenge today for the region and for the UAE. Sometimes, however, it can seem that not much is done with regards to that. And here, I'm not just talking about the UAE or the Gulf countries, but beyond across the board in in the world. And one of the reasons for that is because it demands such a drastic change in the way we are all living our lives. Um, these past few years, uh, the UAE and other Gulf countries uh, have been faced with a series of wake-up calls in the form of feeling the impact, sometimes minor, sometimes less minor, uh, of, of these changes, uh, these global changes. One example of that was, uh, I think it really arrived as a wake-up call, the, the 2018, not financial crisis, although that was obviously extremely important, but the food crisis. So the food and particularly cereal prices surged uh, at that time and disrupted the global food system, which is what is interesting is that it was not due to insufficient, uh, so the, the, the Gulf countries and, and including the, the UAE felt that not because they had insufficient funds to, to buy uh, food, but because countries that were usually selling were sometimes refusing to sell because they needed it for themselves. Um, and so that prompted Gulf countries, including the UAE, to seek solutions to address their hyper-dependence when it comes to food. It is important to note, for instance, that more than 80% of the GCC countries' food supplies come from international markets. So these have these issues have uh, accelerated in the last few years, in, including, of, of course, with the pandemic disrupting supply chains, but also bringing forth other crucial aspects of human security, 
health-wise and socioeconomic inequalities-wise, because we have seen uh, in the UAE and in the Gulf and in other countries how much uh, this pandemic has highlighted um, socioeconomic inequalities and how much the people who were on the on the not great side of that bargain were the, the ones that were the most hardly, uh, harshly hit by, uh, by these health challenges. Um, so faced with the set of new and confirmed threats, the UAE has implemented a number of new measures. In particular, uh, we can think of partnerships with China on COVID testing and vaccine distribution, but also development of innovative uh, uh, solutions to grow plants with little water, for instance. Um, so I'm I'm almost out of time. So I would like I would like to focus on three things uh, to give you food for thought, and I'd be happy to to come back to these. Three things I think are important to note about all of these initiatives. One is on the domestic front, uh, it has been established that, that some some of these initiatives, so not the the solution that I just uh, mentioned to grow plants without without or with very little water, but some, some other measures have been said to be uh, inefficient or that they could be pushed a lot more. And the problem is that pushing them more would mean, as I was saying earlier, deeply transforming people's daily lives. But also, and perhaps more importantly, it would perhaps come clashing with some of what is still or is believed to still be the pillars of political stability in the UAE. Um, one example of this is that the UAE, like other Gulf countries, has looked to increase its water supply instead of making efforts to reduce water demand. Uh, moreover, it uh, has continued to issue subsidies that contribute to wasteful consumption patterns. And um, well, an example of that is to, to see the individual daily water consumption of each of the Gulf states of Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE is more than double that of the United Kingdom, for instance. Now, these policy decisions to not add more pressure on the population to reduce their water demand has a, has a lot to do with the traditional rentier dynamics that, that is still established between the leadership and society in, in Gulf Arab states uh, that have so far contributed to political stability. Now, the problem is that today, human security challenges could threaten these foundational policies notably oil reliance and the rentier political economy that comes with it, but also associated social inequalities, as I was talking about. A second point is that it has been extremely interesting to note how much these initiatives uh, on the part of the UAE today are at the basis of new partnerships and foreign policy dynamics. Um, it has been mentioned a little bit before, but one example uh, of a tripartite agreement, uh, not with India, but in another country, is between UAE, Israel, and Jordan uh, to build renewable electricity and water desalination capacity 
to address the threat posed by climate change on energy and water security in the region. So seeing how much these uh, human security challenges and initiatives to address them have been uh, at the basis of these new patterns of cooperation has been extremely interesting. And last but not least, uh, there is something to say about the performative dimension of all of this, both on the domestic and the foreign side. At least some of these efforts can be understood as part as as um, as part of state branding uh, as a country that cares and does a lot of on these topics. Um, this is especially true because the UAE uh, has arguably a reputation to restore after years of critics about other aspects of traditional security. It has suffered from a lot of, of backlash against uh, some of its military adventurism, be it in Libya or in Yemen. Um, so it, it has come as partly although not entirely, but part of that state branding to, to balance out the reputation of the country today. This doesn't mean that we can't expect a lot of good to come out of these initiatives, but I thought that that was an important point to mention because it's always useful to see initiatives and, and you know, policies with all of their facets. So I hope that uh, this will be um, we'll, that we'll come back to this in, in the discussion. And thank you again very much. Thank you, Emma, for expanding on the non-traditional aspects of security. Um, I think we'll come back to these. We do have, um, we do have questions coming in. Um, and we'll now proceed to the Q&A. And so again, I urge our audience to type in your questions in the Zoom chat box if you have any and I will then relay them to our speakers for today. So without further ado, uh, let me throw out uh, the first question here. Um, and this is from uh, Mira Hussein, uh, who has a question to all the panelists. Um, so her question is, could the speakers share what they think about how ordinary uh, Emiratis perceive, um, for example, the income tax and the role of taxes in general as an important factor of Emirati policies? And could the speakers also perhaps shed light on how the post-oil transition into a tax-based economy will reflect on state and society? So perhaps we should uh, let Mr. Mohammed Bahroun start first since we, he started off and gone a long way since then. So let's go, let's throw the mic back to him. Mohammed, all yours. Thank you, Clemens. Uh, I would say uh, on the first question, uh, uh, there are until now no plans for an income tax, but there are uh, uh, value-added taxes, and people have received them, you know, uh, with skepticism at the beginning. But now it's part of our daily life. So, uh, like anyone else, uh, on a tax-based economy, I wouldn't describe the UAE economy as turning into a tax-based economy. There's a huge diversification plan, and taxes will not be the only source of, of income for governments in the UAE. 
uh, UAE invests as a as a country and you know government investment in in a number of uh, endeavors. So uh, it would be extremely uh, bizarre for me to think of the UAE as government as reliant on taxes only as a source of income. So I, I wouldn't see that. If I am allowed, I want to respond to some of the things that uh, Janandra and Nema said uh, very quickly, if you don't mind. Thank you. Uh, Janandra, uh, I was taken by uh, your example of, of uh, your son uh, taking his uh, Kandura or Tushdasha with him. Because back in 2003, when we started thinking of, of the Watani program, which is the national identity program, questions was, what do we want to do with the UAE national identity? Do we want it to become, you know, something like an emblem that only the true Emiratis would, uh, would, would wear? Or is it something that we want everyone else to share? And uh, when we uh, thought that at, at the level of even the, uh, the logo of the program, the logo of the program was a thumbprint. And the idea of the thumbprint that anyone can produce it. So it was something that people want, that we needed people to assume and become part of their. And what you're saying warms my heart in a sense that those objectives that we were talking about in 2003, now in 2022, is, is, is possibly happening and actually touching people's life. Uh, Emma, two points on conscription. Uh, I, I totally agree with your point on, on uh, the idea of uh, nationalism, but there's also something socio-cultural here, which is the uh, idea of comradeship. Uh, part of what conscription does is that allows young people from either Umm al-Qawain or Fujairah or Abu Dhabi or Dubai to meet up and share a certain sense of, of fate, of destiny, uh, of future together. They would not have joined that. They would not. They, they might not have met without it. Without that conscription, they would go to their own schools. They would possibly go and work in there. But with conscription, they're allowed to build up that national identity. And I think that is my second point of integration. That's an, an integration program. But on your water example, I would, you know, if you allow me to, to differ, because uh, you cannot compare the consumption of water in the UK. Uh, with the consumption of water in, in, in the UAE. In the same manner, I cannot compare the consumption of gas in the UK with the consumption of gas in the UAE. For instance, the consumption of, uh, uh, of gas in, in, in the UK uh, per capita is about 40,895 cubic meter. I looked that up, by the way. And in the UAE, it's about 760 cubic, cubic meter. Huge difference. You know, and, and to because of, of uh, basically uh, warming, you, you don't need to warm your houses here in the UAE uh, with natural gas in the same way it is warmed in the UK. So uh, the, the, these uh, might not be exactly comparable in, in that sense. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mohammed. The other two speakers like to add on to in the response to that question on taxes. Yeah, uh, you know. Actually, I had a little statistic which I skipped um, when I was speaking earlier. Um, I think this is from at least uh, 10 years old, uh, 10 years ago. And uh, it's, that report mentioned that the UAE government spends an average of 4,000 US dollars per expatriate per year um, in terms of ensuring his or her well being. Right, uh, but an expatriate actually pays only about 700 US dollars. 
uh, as various fees to government departments, etc. And that's a huge bill uh, that the uh, that the government actually, you know, bears as subsidies. Uh, I think roughly about uh, 14 billion US dollars at that point in time. Obviously, that's increased given that uh, we've had a massive growth in population. So. Uh, people are not really worried about paying some taxes, especially if they are coming from countries where their taxes are not being utilized well enough, right? Uh, so I can tell you again a few anecdotes. Uh, one of my friends, when I came here in 2000, spent roughly about uh, 20 US dollars from the time his wife conceived till the time uh, of confinement, just $20. Uh, the government bore all of it. But now the government, I think you walk into any government hospital, let alone a private hospital, and even a government hospital will charge you about 2000 US dollars uh, for a pregnancy and, 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 and a delivery of a child. It's, it's changed the whole deal. You've got Salik, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, a fee for going on certain uh, busy streets. You've got parking fees. You've got um, uh, municipality fees, a host of indirect taxes have come in. But, you know, many of them are not really perturbed by it. So I'm not too sure. VAT, VAT is a big thing, right? I mean, which didn't exist until about uh, two years ago, three years ago. So that too has uh, obviously, uh, you know, become a part of the government's economic diversification plan. Um, and, and people are happy to be part of it. There are a few examples from the other Gulf countries. I think if I'm not mistaken, Bahrain started uh, charging uh, 1% fee on all expatriates income, basically to fund uh, local you know, unemployment problems. So there are some samples that are coming about. Um, Saudi Arabia has started charging 10% or more, 15% I think now of VAT. Uh, Kuwait has been talking about some form of income tax for many, many years. Uh, so I don't think uh, one must believe that this is the end of indirect taxes. Uh, there could be some direct taxes coming up in the future. Even I think um, Emiratis have had to pay up a fair bit in the recent past. And this is all, I think, in a way, preparing uh, future generations of even Emiratis, because the government, I think, is is trying to convey the message to the Emiratis that uh, the public sector jobs have reached saturation point. You need to start thinking of alternatives. Um, economic diversification will not be a success if you don't have a knowledge economy. There is now an emphasis on knowledge economy. Uh, the private sector will not entertain you if you don't have enough skills. If the public sector can't absorb you and you have to move into the private sector, especially for the Emiratis, you have to start thinking in terms of uh, better qualifications. Uh, all of this, even I think uh, conscription in a way is trying to convey to the people that you can't just believe that the government is going to take care of everything. You need to work hard. You need to uh, contribute uh, towards nation building in a sense. You need to be prepared for uh, life without oil, in a sense, or a post-oil economy, all of these things. I mean, it may be uh, in bits and pieces, but I think there are messages, hidden messages in all these efforts that are going on. Thanks, Jonathan. And, and I think, uh, well, conscription is something we do here in Singapore. So I am well aware that you know, what 
of the pros and cons of it, I guess you can say. But moving on to, to your point about, you know, when you responded to the question on Texas about the fact that, you know, uh, in a way, you know, Emirates are also supporting the well-being of the expat community uh, living in, in the UAE. So I would like to now pass the baton on to, to Emma because, you know, then as a devil's advocate, my question is, uh, you know, are there remaining social inequalities and how do we bridge them if, if so? So Emma, over to you. Thank you. Um... Yeah, I, I would like to to um, well thank thank both uh, both speakers for their remarks because I think well to to go back to the question I think uh, indeed it would be it would be erroneous to think that uh, the UAE economy is is transitioning from an oil based economy to a tax based economy uh, I think we're very very far from that. Um, Two points. I mean, uh, Mohammed made a point on you know sovereign wealth funds and governmental uh, investment. I think that's that's a very important uh, aspect of it. To such a point that be it in the UAE or other Gulf countries with with very uh, very important sovereign wealth funds, it um, I've asked myself the question uh, a couple of times of how much you know if. With the right investments, uh, does that mean that we could be actually seeing a transition from an oil-based economy to an investment-based economy, which has important uh, um, consequences for the questions that you that you posed and that have been addressed uh, by Yanadan also, uh, which is. There are a lot of messages in the policies that are implemented in the UAE, indeed. Uh, there is clearly a sense, be it through national conscription or through uh, a couple of taxes or through just the messages that are you know, addressed to, uh, to the use that uh, things need to change. But to be a devil's advocate here uh, on, on another topic is how do you convince people that they need to change if you don't actually prove that things need to change? If the economy continues to rely on investments or you know non-productive uh, uh, sources of money, so it's, it, it, it comes from oil and then it's investments, how do you actually convince your population that it needs to get started and be productive? Because it seems that you don't actually need it, right? So it's it's um, I think that's the piece that's missing, and this is why I was I was saying that you know, and I I, I appreciated your point on you can't compare apples and oranges, you know, uh, between the UK and and the UAE or, or other Gulf countries in terms of water consumption. But I still think that there is something to be said about how much of an incentive is given to the local population to change their patterns of consumption, be it food or water. Sure, maybe not twice as bad as, as the UK, but there is still something. I mean, you have a lot of social sociological um, studies that have been made on consumption patterns in, in the Gulf across the board and uh, including in the UAE. So I think that's the piece, the piece uh, that's missing. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, initiatives that are pushed, but then the reality doesn't show how much it, it is necessary. And so um, 
so I think that that's the piece that's missing. As to are there, are there still inequalities between uh, all of the different segments of the population in the UAE or across the board in the Gulf region? I mean, frankly, of course there are. Uh, we, we've been talking a lot today about uh, an, an expat community that is not the one that is the most harshly uh, hit by you know, health challenges, et cetera. When we talk about expats in the Gulf across the board and including in the UAE, we're not just talking about people who have been uh, established for years and have good living. We're also talking about workers who uh, make a lot less money and uh, that don't have the same kind of living conditions. So frankly speaking, I mean, of course, there are still inequalities and I don't think that these are the experts that we've been talking about today. Um, Clemens, if I can just add a bit to what Emma said, it'll be interesting to read uh, the concept of uh, Kaliji capitalism, uh, you know, in terms of how there's been so much of um, investments, at least in the recent years. And, and I'm sure in a few years, somebody will do a good study in terms of how some of the GCC countries survived during the pandemic time uh, with, with no oil sales. Uh, where were the revenues coming in from? Did they pull out money from wherever they had invested in the past? Um, that'll be very interesting. I once heard, again, anecdotal, uh, no empirical evidence that uh, the financial crisis in the West was uh, partly, uh, uh, you know, an outcome of many of the Gulf countries withdrawing a hell of a lot of money to put in, uh, to invest in their own projects at home. Uh, while they had actually been investing abroad, this time they'd started either, they'd stopped investing as much as they'd been doing in the past, or they were actually withdrawing money from, from uh, abroad to fund their own projects at home. That's, that's one thing that I want to mention. The second thing is also just in terms of how prudent they've become in terms of utilizing their resources, right? I mean, we often talk about the first oil boom when I think uh, there was a lot of uh, wastage of resources, uh, money was splurged on many unwanted things apparently. But now, uh, during the second oil boom, they have indeed been very wise in terms of they, uh, how they've used money, especially in the last few years. I don't know, Mohammed can tell us better. I don't think there has been a salary hike, Mohammed, uh, for, for a fair while now in the federal entities. Maybe uh, the Emirates, uh, individual Emirates have been increasing salaries, but at the federal government level, I've been part of the federal government for uh, a fairly long time. There have been no salary increases. In the past, every second year, there would be some sort of an increase or the other. Now, five, six years, I am sure there has been no uh, federal government salaries that have been increased. And there have been no major you know, complaints by anywhere, neither the uh, federal, I mean, the Emiratis nor the expatriates. And a good number of uh, federal government employees are expatriates. So I think there is a certain realization that's dawning upon. And the government has been pretty smart in terms of conveying the message, both to expatriates saying that this is not an Eldorado like it was in the past. You can, you can just come in and just enjoy yourself and, and, and walk away. They've also been very smart in terms of opening up the economy for expatriates. I think that's been a very, very good move, which we don't highlight enough. I mean, until about uh, 2006, 2007, you didn't have options for expatriates to invest money in this part of the world, in, in the UAE. I mean, everything was being remitted home. All that money is now being retained in the country in terms of allowing people to trade in the stock market, in terms of 
allowing people to buy property, uh, you know, and, and businesses, all of that has uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, changed things a fair bit. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, we have a number of questions coming and I'm going to group them uh, together and allocate them accordingly. Uh, but since we're on the talk about uh, employment and labor, so I'm going to, to give these two questions to Jonathan and Mohammed. Uh, let me just piece these questions together. On the first part, you know, um, is there any more that can be done to labor laws for foreigners? And on the second part, is there a growing unemployment problem affecting Emiratis that also undermines tolerance discourse and also the transition for university graduates to access private sector jobs that favor better skilled expatriates? That's the, that's the two-part question that I'm going to give it to Janadan and Mohammed. For Emma, uh, your question for you is on public health security. I think it's, it's, it's quite apt here because you covered uh, human security. So the question is um, touching on the crucial health challenges such as the high rates of obesity, diabetes, and heart diseases. You know, what more can the UAE do in terms of boosting the health sector, especially in light of a post-pandemic environment? So that's, that's your question, Emma. So perhaps we go back to Mohammed to answer our uh, labor slash employment questions. Over to you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Clemens. Uh, I think uh, unemployment is, is a major uh, issue everywhere in the world, particularly in the Arab world. Uh, but uh, within the UAE context, if you look at the number of expats working in the UAE, then unemployment is not lack of jobs. Uh, you know, there are jobs available for everyone. Uh, and there is even a need to get people outside from, from outside the UAE to take up those jobs. So uh, the issue is not lack of jobs. It's the issue of trying to get the best people within you know, the local community to get the best type of jobs. Now, there are when, when you come to the private sector, there are two major issues. First one is that private sector is private. And the UAE has lightened its sort of hand on forcing corporation to take up a certain quota of, of, uh, of employees because of previous experiences that led to what we call the masqueraded unemployment. People will be given jobs, but they will not be doing anything that would really uh, uh, help the UAE in it. So you would get a, a job if you're a local young uh, uh, graduate as a receptionist, which would not take you too far if you want to actually uh, uh, make them uh, part of the, uh, you know, uh, the future of the UAE. Uh, so uh, the bet from the UAE government was to increase the uh, uh, you know employability of uh, of the UAE graduate by improving the education system by making it more attuned to what the the job market want by giving them skills that would be required uh, by the employers rather than force the employers to take the UAE. Uh, graduates. Now, that is, uh, uh, you know, on, on the long run, a very adequate strategy. On the short run, it will not give you a quick yield. And I think that is where the balance for the UAE policymakers. Do we want to force people to take up 
uh, young employees and, and, and young graduates and just put them somewhere, stack them somewhere so they can fit, fill in or check, check in the box of uh, uh, emeritization? Or do we actually want them to be very important to uh, uh, you know, take leadership roles? And that is something we cannot enforce when it comes to private sectors. Uh, so I think that is uh, uh, the point uh, uh, to be made. Um, Thanks, Mohammed. Over to you, Jonathan. Yeah, let me uh, give you a positive spin um, here. In, just in terms of how this whole idea of trying to develop or promote uh, knowledge economy has actually worked out, right? I already mentioned a while ago that um, the public sector will not be able to absorb uh, Emiratis and its workforce as it moves forward. Um, so I think the message is being conveyed. It was in 2017, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Sheikh Abdullah, who's the foreign minister of the UAE, actually uh, issued a statement um, at, at a graduation ceremony, I think, saying that uh, don't expect us to provide you jobs in the future. You need to actually start uh, thinking of doing things on your own. And uh, I, I think in the last decade or so, startup culture has, has really blossomed like anywhere else in the world. There's a huge community of Emiratis who are indulging in, in, in startup businesses. And uh, you'll be amazed. Uh, I have come across a lot of Emiratis now uh, in, in jobs that I never thought they would be in. There are plenty of chefs. There are plenty of um, horse riders. There are plenty of horse whisperers. Uh, magicians. Uh, and, and these are things that you would never imagine Emiratis ever being in, right? I mean, they would all just simply graduate and get into one of the public sector uh, jobs. But now increasingly, they are beginning to, uh, you know, they're getting creative, if you can call that art. Art scene is big time in, in the UAE. There are so many artists, there are so many art galleries, people are uh, you know, opening up uh, huge places to exhibit art, sell art, uh, and, and all of these things are, are happening all the time. So I think, you know, yes, uh, this is not exactly an economy that's transitioning from oil to non-oil economy, but it's certainly transitioning from one where people had taken uh, the government for granted and that they expected the government to do everything for them. I think uh, the government has uh, begun to prepare them and, and, and the results are beginning to show in bits and pieces uh, all over the place. Thank you, Jonathan. Over to you, Emma, on uh, public health security. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I will have a, a point on public health security because I think it actually relates to the question of you know, jobs and labor and, and how can the UAE leadership uh, do more to actually uh, reach the goals that it's set for, for itself and for the, the Emirati population. I, I really, really appreciated, sorry about the noise, um, really appreciated your, your point, uh, Mohammed, on, on how much um, things need to, to change so that Emiratis in the future can, can take on leadership roles, you know, in the private sector. And to your point also, Yana, Dan, about the fact that, you know, um, the goal here is for not every uh, Emirati young person to just rely on a government job. And I think part of the equation here is about salaries, right? Um, I think, 
if you, and it is the case, I mean, take my country in France, uh, when you graduate, you know that you have a choice uh, given, given, you know, I, I was in international relations. So that means I have a choice between choosing basically job security, you know, long-term and trying to get a government job that will most probably be less paid than the private sector. Or I can, you know, go for the private sector and do different things. Like some of these jobs are actually very similar, right? But part of the equation as a young uh, person who, who just got, you know, just graduated was this salary aspect. And I really feel like it's not the case in the UAE and other Gulf countries because the salaries in the public sector are so, so advantages that of course you're going to you're going to go for the government jobs so i feel like one thing that the uae government could do like uh, many others it could be to lower those salaries to actually give an incentive to go towards the private sector and develop you know um skills and and a career plan that actually looks elsewhere than government that was kind of part of what i was saying you know earlier which is there could be more done to really push the youth to, to choose differently. Um, and on this argument of the, of the salaries and to kind of go back also to the, the question of inequalities, I'll preface this with saying that this is actually a problem and an absurdity that we see in the Gulf, but across the board, we see that in the entire world, is that if you look at what happened two years ago, during the pandemic, everything shut down and we had everywhere this notion of the only people who would have to go to work were essential workers, right? Those essential workers were on the front line of the pandemic. They were the one taking the hardest hit of the pandemic. Those were really essential. Those were, you know, acclimated as heroes that they are. And now we're two years later, what is being done about that? What is being done in terms of how much of a salary increase that should be so tremendous have these people seen? Not, not really, you know, like not in the UAE, but not in the US where I live right now, not in France, you know, those, those questions are the one that needs addressing today. Because if we're serious about tackling the challenges of the future in terms of human security, we need to actually put that money where the, the mouth is and where our actual needs are and our needs are with essential workers. We need those, the, those skills, those people. So let's show it with, with increase of salaries and also with efforts to orient the education accordingly. What do we need? We need nurses, we need doctors, we need people because so much of the economy in the diversification, diversified economy in the UAE and other countries is based on tourism and building all the, you know, always more malls and, and et cetera. Well, then let's orient the education towards this. We need, we need people who are able to build buildings well, how, how do we actually orient education and training towards the skills that the country actually needs? I think that would be doing a lot. And so I think that that actually tackles part of the, the, the question about public health, because I feel like, and 
it is important to preface it to say this is not a UAE problem. Perhaps in the UAE, it's even more visible because of the imbalance between expats and and the local population. But this is a challenge that all of the countries around the world face. You know, it's a how do we actually implement all of the good feelings that were pushed during the pandemic to say public health is so important today. We need to invest and do more in terms of making sure that the population understand how much is an, it is important not to look good, but to stay healthy, to do more sports or, you know, like, and, and to eat healthy. And it is also actually related to the consumption patterns that I was talking about earlier. So everything is connected. And, um, and I think really uh, putting a, a, a stress and more of a focus, both in terms of policies and messages to the population as to what it is actually important today, which is public health, um, most importantly, perhaps, and food security and water security, instead of, of continuing the pre-pandemic world of, you know, uh, having more, more hedge funds or something like, at the end of the day, that's, that's not what is going to make people survive. Um, so I, I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Emma. Well, we have one minute, but I'm going to uh, leave these two questions to different speakers with short remarks, I must insist. Uh, so the, the first question is from John Liu, uh, my colleague here, um, is on Abraham Accords. And, and for this, I think I'll give it to both Emma and Jonathan and how uh, are there challenges in terms of the reactions, whether it's on the geopolitical level or at the, at the communal, community level, are there reactions and are there, would there be generational, you know, different generational uh, reactions in that sense. So that's the question for both of you. Uh, for Mohammed, and I think this one should be the one that ends off our discussion for today because you talked a bit about the first phase of federalization. And, and here the question is, uh, how do you determine or delegate the authority for mega projects, transformative projects to the seven Emirates? And what are the goals or characteristics of each Emirates in this federal framework? So I think that will be a nice way to, to end our discussion for today. So short remarks from both uh, Jonathan and Emma. Jonathan first, I guess, on the Abraham Accords. Um, I don't know. Uh, John Lowe knows everything. He was here, right, when the Abraham Accords were signed. So I, I wonder why he's asking this question. Anyway, uh, I... I Look, it's not just about opportunities. And I think the UAE and Israel both knew very well when they signed the Abraham Accords that this is not just about opportunities, but it's about challenges as well. Uh, we've seen them moving forward uh, in terms of the opportunities, but challenges, yes, we saw one recently in terms of the violence that took place in, uh, in Jerusalem and um, how the UAE has been pushing towards uh, um, you know, trying to get that sorted out in a way. I think those challenges are going to come about in the future as well. Iran is going to be a big challenge as well. I mean, uh, for all that the UAE wants to achieve in terms of engaging with Iran, I think if there's one country in the world which is totally opposed to the idea of engagement with Iran, it's Israel, right? So how does UAE and uh, Israel, how do we, UAE and Israel reconcile to the idea of bringing Iran into the picture? Um, that's going to be another major challenge for the UAE moving forward. 
Uh, it's also going to be a challenge in terms of how both these countries deal with the United States uh, in a multipolar world. Uh, we saw that happening in, uh, in, in uh, the UNSC vote, right? Uh, and, and overall, if you look at uh, what's happening around the world, um, more and more countries are beginning to think in terms of what I said is a multipolar world or what Mohammed Baroon called a multi-networked world. And there are going to be complications. I think that's where um, I foresee uh, minilateralism or trilateralism, plurilateralism coming into the picture. The multilateral, bilateralism is, is, has reached saturation point. Multilateralism is not working well. Um, so minilaterals and plurilaterals are going to come into play. And these are going to be uh, you know, short-term, uh, convenience-oriented, and, and there are going to be challenges, but I think they're ready for it. They look at opportunities, they work together where there are opportunities and they will differ wherever they have to. I think uh, they will exercise their strategic autonomy. Israel is not going to compromise on its security just because UAE wants it to um, you know, sort out things on the Palestinian front. And uh, UAE is not going to compromise on uh, Arab solidarity and Palestinian solidarity. So those challenges will remain, but they will work together moving forward. Thanks, Jonathan. Emma, over to you. Yes, thank you. I don't have much to add to what Jonathan just said. I think um, I really I, I wanted to to commend Mohammed also for this this idea of a network based uh, world order because I think that uh, in and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's also a way to to see the the world as it is. Uh, recomposed today around networks that are, and, and I think the Abraham Accord is a good example of that, extremely pragmatic. Um, that means that we can agree uh, to, to cooperate because we have common incentives to do so when it comes to cooperation and technology and addressing some security topics, which doesn't mean uh, that we're gonna address everything and agree on everything. Um, and so I, I think that the, the Abraham Accord is a, is a demonstration of that with the UAE having uh, a lot of technological skills that, that it's interested in, in, in Israel in a number of topics uh, in, in defense and security, including also uh, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity uh, topics. And that it won't comp compromise what it has uh, developed as a as a hyper networked uh, international relations, and not not the first Gulf country to do so, I may add. Um, but I I think yeah I the the problem. I think what we're seeing today, and that might be why Saudi Arabia hasn't signed the Abraham Accord yet, uh, is the huge difference between Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, is in terms of population precisely. Uh, there might be a lot more pushback in Saudi Arabia uh, to, to be compromising like that on the Palestinian cause, which is less of a problem in the UAE, I feel. Um, because the population is 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 uh, smaller, and also uh, because the 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 messaging around the Abraham Accord has has been to say how how beneficial it could be for the Palestinians. When you listen to the Palestinians, it sounds like um, that's uh, that's not uh, that's not very accurate messaging. 
but I, I feel like in, in the UAE, this message is, is heard by, by a lot of countries. And so that also pertains to what kind of messaging has been surrounding the Abraham Accord. Thank you, Emma. And over to you, Mohammed, to wrap up our discussion on, on the federal model and, and the seven Emirates. Thank you very much. And uh, if I may add to the concept of the Abrahamic Accords, I don't think that the UAE is sort of compromising on uh, the, the Palestinian cause. It was quite obvious from the beginning that this is uh, an important issue. Uh, but I agree with Emma, this is the, the, the type of pragmatism here exhibited is that you can still change the topography of this long historical struggle by changing this matrix of who is friend and who is foe and changing things on the ground could uh, lean to further changes. I, I, if I would bet money, though I'm not uh, a gambler, uh, I would say that the Abrahamic Accord is actually going to open up more space for compromise between the Palestinians and the Israelis, more than what we have seen in, in the past. On the idea of uh, mega uh, transformational projects, I think those start, uh, uh, you know, uh, with with the local authorities. So you could see, for instance, when when it comes to renewable energy, you could see Masdar starting over there. You could see Shams doing uh, in in Dubai. But then we've seen the drive for the UAE as a country to host uh, Arena, uh, the uh, renewable energy uh, agency. Uh, in, in the UAE, and we've seen the uh, UAE uh, uh, energy mix strategy. So uh, those the, there is an interplay between what is uh, uh, done on the uh, on the local level and what's done on on the federal level. And I think that is part of this concept of uh, you know how can you uh, use strength that you have on the local uh, or emirates level and the federal level. And I will leave it there with a thank you very much for you and for the questions from the audience and, and my fellow panelists. Thank you, Mohammed. I'd like to extend my gratitude to all our speakers for today for not only attending, but for also covering a great deal of ground with a lot of rigor, uh, especially when answering the questions. So thank you to all three of you, Mohammed, Emma and Janathan. Also to our audience, thank you for that successive steady flow of questions that you, you put in the chat box. I think we've answered almost all of them as to the best of our abilities. So thank you again. And I will wish everyone a very good rest of evening, rest of the day or rest of the afternoon. Thank you.